Morning, church. We're doing okay. Beautiful day. Guess the Buckeyes pulled it off after all last night, huh? I went to bed when they kicked that field goal and tied it up, and I thought, I can't wait for this, you know. I, man. Well, I'm glad for you. You're always a nicer church when they win on Sundays. It's easier to preach when they win. You're all happier. So praise the Lord for that, I guess, you know. <laughs> hey, some of, the, some of the best and most important music of our history has, it's something that grew out of times of oppression and suffering. You know that, I think. People have, during these times have consoled themselves and have cried out to God through their songs while their oppressors did a variety of unspeakable things to them. And uh, that was never more true than during the early to mid-1800s in our country when slavery was at its peak and among the mostly African people who had been kidnapped and sold as property to the highest bidders, songs of suffering emerged and have really continued to mark us, I think, and, and I pray remind us, remind us of this single truth that people are people no matter what. Did you hear that? People are people no matter what. And if you were raised up in a way that said, well, that's not true. Some people are different than others. I challenge you in the name of Jesus to deal with that. In the name of Jesus, I challenge you to go to the Lord and ask him if that's true. And see if you don't come away with a different perspective. But during that era, some of those songs, such as Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen, spoke of the deep suffering of these dear people whose lives were were really literally taken from them and put in the hands of somebody else to do with as they pleased. And it was truly a terrible time in the history of our country, and I think continues to be a blemish of hypocrisy on a country that was presumably founded on the premise of individual freedom for all people. But one of the songs of that era and circumstance that has always had my attention is the song, Everybody Talking About Heaven Ain't Going There. And it's not hard to imagine for any of us how such a song could have come about, is it, in that era? Um... Most of the slave owners in that era were, were confessing Christians. And so they would read their Bibles, and they prayed their prayers in the name of Jesus Christ. And they went off to their church meetings, and they sang their songs and heard sermons about really every subject under the sun except for one. The cruel injustice of slavery. So when these slave owners, they came home from church, no, forget it, and uh, continued to mistreat their slaves in everything from severe beatings to the breakup of families for commercial gain to slave-owning men visiting slave women in the dark of the night, to just about any atrocity you can think of, it's not hard to 
to figure how such a song could have come about, is it? Everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. And if you think about it, it was their only defense. Because the only thing that slave owners could not take away from these people was their right to think. They may have had to work long hours under hot suns while threatened by a man on a horse with a whip, but they could still always think their own thoughts and draw their own conclusions. And in the midst of this hypocrisy, they could say to one another, everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. How could these people who went to their churches and talked about their Jesus heaven really think that at the end of the day, their cruelties would not testify against them on the day of their own judgment before this God they said they believed in? Because just because the people could talk a good talk when the preacher was looking doesn't mean that they would not be judged for not walking a good walk all the while that God was looking. Hence the obvious conclusion, everybody talking about heaven, what? Ain't going there. So, uh, as we continue our study on the Sermon on the Mount, conclude it today, I promise. Last installment. We hear a similar tone from Jesus in this passage. When he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Everybody talking about heaven, what? Ain't going there. Not everybody, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. These are truly among the most terrifying words of Scripture, are they not? We can hardly imagine these kinds of words even coming out of the mouth of the Jesus that we believe in. But they did. They came right out of his mouth, and these words make us tremble, and they should. Because every one of us knows that no matter how long, hard we've been endeavoring to follow Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of our lives, every one of us know that we are not perfect. We still stumble, we still fall, we still sin. So we approach these words of Jesus humbly and fearfully. We pray earnestly that we understand these words and that they would, tell me if you agree, we pray earnestly that there would be no possibility of our ever hearing these words, away from me, evil doer, I never knew you. Is that your prayer? Is that your prayer, church? These are hard words. But I have some incredibly good news for you. And also some very bad news. The good news is that these words were not about you. That's a nice surprise, isn't it? I will show you in a moment from the scripture that these words were not directed to the great majority of you and do not hang over your heads. That's good news, yeah? yeah. Woo! You say, let's go, honey. He says it doesn't count. The very bad news 
is that these words were about me. They're directed to me as your pastor and to anyone else who agrees to take up the ministry as pastor. Sometimes you sit and you daydream and you go, I'd like a job like his. You only work one day a week. I, I'd like that. I'd like for people to come to me and hear my perspective on the word. I'd like that. That's okay. But don't ever take a step in that direction unless the Lord himself is calling you and you find it impossible to take a step in any other direction. I would much rather, if I may say so, have spent my life teaching middle school science and coming to a good church like this and giving it my all than doing what I have done. But there was no possibility of escaping the Lord's call. Let me show you what I mean from this passage here. Please tell me the single most important element of good Bible study. Thank you. Context, context, context. If you want to understand the text, you've got to study the context. Let's look at this passage. What is the context of these terrifying words of Jesus? Well, first of all, it's part of the Sermon on the Mount. We know that by now, right? <laughs> Matthew 5, 6, and 7, a continuous flow of the words of Jesus toward his disciples and some crowd that had gathered. It was the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. And you know from being in church enough that the conclusion is the most important part, right? That's the part, like, so what does this have to do with me, right? Hello? That's why you come. And he was speaking to a group of people who had just heard the most revolutionary message possible. He said, I know you've heard that it was said, but I say. Right? How many times did he say that over and over again? And he, he had just spoken a revolutionary word. So he includes a critically important section about what? About false prophets. And these people would have been wondering by this time, who is this guy? Why should we listen to him when his message is so different from the message we've been hearing. Of course they would have been thinking this. And these people would have been saying to one another, this Jesus doesn't teach the way our prophets have taught us, the way our teachers have taught us. He's saying something else. And so Jesus responds to their concern with a section about true and false prophets. He's in their heads. And in order to understand these horrifying words of Jesus Christ, away from me, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. In order to understand those words, you have to begin in verse 15, not verse 21. If you look at some of your Bibles there, you'll see that some of, some of them have broken those two parts up, 15 through 20, and then there's some other little heading false disciples or false followers or something like that, as though those two passages were not connected. And in reality, 
the Greek does not offer you that luxury. This is a continuous flow of words where Jesus began the section that says, Watch out for false prophets, etc., 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 and then I will tell them plainly who? The false prophets. It's about the false prophets. The ones who said, Lord, we did the stuff. We were casting out devils. We were healing the sick. But he said to them, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Is that a relief? For you. <laughs> For you. I'm glad I could bring some comfort to your life today. This is a continuous context. If you'd like a seminary word for it, it's called a pericope. Oh boy, I hoped I'd get a seminary word today. I paid a lot of money and did a lot of work to learn these words. You've got to let me throw one out every now and then. It's called a pericope, which is uh, the, the containment of a passage. A, an, an extract. These are not two. This is one pericope. This is one that begins in verse 15 and flows from verse 23. And so when he says them, the antecedent, <laughs> in, in other words, who are them? Right? Are the, come on, you can do this. Who are them? The false prophets. Are you a false prophet? Are you a prophet? Whoa, aren't you lucky? The problem of false prophets plagued the people of Israel and the first century church. Throughout the Old Testament, we've seen the problem. Jeremiah struggled with these false prophets around him. He was ready to give up so many times. And yet he said the thing that I just talked about. He said, Lord, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm done. I've had it. I'm not going to do it another minute. These people aren't listening to me. Why I'm sounding like Andy Griffith, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not going to do it another minute. No, sorry. He said, I'm not going to do this anymore. And then he says this. Yet if I remain silent, your word is shut up within me like a fire in my bones. He couldn't get away. He wanted to get away. He wanted to be a seat sitter. But he couldn't, because God called him. And so he had problems with these false prophets. And here's one of the things he said, Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 11. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Hold on to that for a minute. Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when they're punished. False prophets plagued the people of the Old Testament. False prophets plagued the people of the New Testament. Second Peter chapter 2 is a terrible chapter. It's a frightening chapter, Second Peter chapter 2. But there were also false prophets among the people, it says, just as there will be false prophets among you. 
That's the word of the Lord. There will be false prophets. And prophets by the New Testament had the standard of the pastor, the one who was called to bring the word of God to people. They're, they're an equivalent. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of the truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they've made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned and sent them to hell, that's about Satan, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the, by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. Now remember, this is all in the context of false prophets. Don't get all nervous about your salvation. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. These false prophets who set themselves up as authority. Come to me. Bow to me. Bring to me. Bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they're stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusation against such beings in the presence of the Lord. And it goes on. So there will be false prophets. And this passage from Matthew says, here's how you will recognize a false prophet. And you need to do the test. By their what, you shall know them. By their fruit. What could that mean? Well, certainly it means the fruit of their life. If you see glaring deficiencies, you will never find a perfect prophet. You know that. You'll never find a perfect pastor. But if you see the glaring deficiencies of the absence of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control, if you see obvious deficiencies there, you should wonder. But the other part of the fruit of the false prophet, or the fruit of, fruit of the prophet at all, is their message. It's the fruit of their lips, Hebrews says. Fruit of their lips. And you can recognize a false prophet by the fact, a couple of things, that their message is intended to build a crowd rather than purify a church. It's a soothing message meant to draw and keep a crowd. And I'm not at all saying that all large churches are led by false prophets. I know some godly men with huge, enormous followings. Many of these pastors have large, large followings because they are preaching the truth. And people long for the truth. But some of these pastors have large followings because they soothe their followers with a message that the Bible says in these words, giving them what their itching ears want to hear. And so you can tell a false prophet by that. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that there's not solace in the gospel. Of course, there's, there's a magnificent soothing that comes from the gospel message, isn't there? But only after what? After you have faced the hard reality of your sin. It doesn't leave you in your sin. It makes you uncomfortable in your sin. It doesn't soothe you in your sin 
It says, come out of there. I want to make you holy. I want to change your life. I want to bring sanctification into your life. The second thing you can notice about a false prophet today is their message is never offensive. It's never offensive. Because you can't keep a crowd. You can't keep the crowd strong, numerous, and bring the offense of the cross, the Bible says. There's no talk about the holiness of God, about the righteousness of God, about the wrath of God. There's no talk about the plight of the lost or the reality of hell. In our Vineyard 101, when we get to that part where newcomers come, and I get to that line, and I say, we believe in the reality of heaven and hell, and that a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of your life is the only thing that makes a difference between the two. I love that part. I love to tell the truth. Also in a false prophet, there's no talk of the exclusion of the word. What? Only the inclusion of it. The word of God sets a boundary. Sets a boundary. And it excludes some who do not obey the word. And it includes those who do. There's been a shift in the vineyard over the 20 years I've been a part of it into a manner of thinking made popular called the centered set theory, and I, it has value. But instead of a bounded set, which means there's a circle and you're either in or out of it, there's a centered set and we're all in the circle and whether we're looking at Jesus or not, there is certainly some value in that. But at the end of the day... At the end of the day, the Bible sets a standard for us and calls us to live a life. And the false prophet won't say that. Because they want to include everybody. We got bills to pay. So I'm saying that these, I mean, so am I saying that these words of Jesus have no application for a pastor? For, for someone who's not a pastor or a prophet of some kind, I mean, wow, what do you, why, let's, let's go home, okay, sucks to be you, you know, I mean, wow, but I'm not, so I'm going. Is there no application for you? Not at all. I want you to note a few things from this passage. First of all, note that all that glitters is not gold. All that glitters is not gold. These guys, if you read through this passage, when Jesus said this, said, Lord, did we not do the cool stuff. Did we not cast out demons? Lord, did we not? Did we not? All that glitters isn't gold. Remember the magicians of Pharaoh could do the same thing, same tricks as Moses could do. So first of all, you've got to realize that if you're interested in a pastor who's the equivalent of a prophet, some pastoral teaching that has all of the stuff, all of the gold, that doesn't qualify them as a true teacher. It doesn't disqualify them at all. But just be careful. I think the second thing that you should note is that the true test of authenticity, of an authentic spirit, is what's going on in the inside that can be then seen on the outside. The Bible says, by their fruit you will recognize them. And I want you to just think about that great analogy. And fruit starts microscopically, doesn't it, on a tree. 
and just expands. It's something that starts on the inside and then expands to the point that you can see the blossom and you can see the fruit. And I think you have to look at that. It means that being a true Christian for you as well is not something that's a part of your life, but it's something that is central to your life. Have you let Jesus Christ into the center yet? Or is he part? Oh, it's Sunday, we're going to church. That's part of what we fit in. Instead of making Jesus the center of your life and then going to the other dynamics, other aspects, other realities of your life from that center. Does that make sense? It's about fruit. I want you to also notice in this passage that they were surprised by the Lord's rejection of them. Lord, what do you mean? What do you, didn't we do this stuff? Everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. But I want you to notice that in their case, their danger was in relying on themselves. Lord, did we not drive out these demons? Did we not do this? Did we not do that in your name? But did we not do it? And he's saying, exactly. You did it. I didn't do it through you. They were surprised that it's going to be possible to be surprised. Notice also that the issue of being a Christian has nothing to do with what we do if it does not proceed from it being about who we know. They said, we did all this stuff, and Jesus said, here's your problem. I never knew you. You never belonged to me. Jesus Christ, by the present ministry of the Holy Spirit, listen to this, wants you to know him, wants you to experience him. It'll be unique to each one of us because we're unique individuals, but he wants you to know him. The core of this rejection is that I never knew you. You knew about me, but I never knew you. You didn't let me in to the part of your life that would say, that's one of my boys right there. So where does all this leave us? Two things I want you to do this morning with this passage. First, I want you to test me. You need to test me. You need to always be sure that the person in whose spiritual care you place yourself is the real thing. That's on you. You need to test me. As you do... As you make your discernment about me, whether I'm the real thing or not, please keep in mind a few things. Number one, while you must test me, you may not judge me. (laughs) Don't cross the line where you're deciding. Let's say you come to a negative conclusion about me and say, I I think he may be a false teacher. You you still may not determine my salvation. We we did that toward the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, didn't we? Okay? So be careful when you're testing me or any person whose ministry you're interested in. Be careful that while you test them, you don't judge them, okay? Second, I want you to keep in mind that I have already openly and repeatedly confessed my imperfections. I think I've been open about that. There have been times when Karen says, Cobb, you need to back off on what a sinner you are, man. We get it. (laughs) I've been open about that. 
I urge you to be very wary of a pastor who makes no mention of his weakness. He's always confident and sure. And the Apostle Paul himself said, Who will deliver me from this body of death? I don't do the things I know I should do, and I do the things I know I should. That's Paul. I think that's the model. So as you judge me, as you test me, I should say, as you discern me, know that. That that's going to be true of any pastor. Know this, that I have made clear my calling to you and what I'm doing here. And what I mean by that is that as you discern me, try not to judge me by my coarseness. Because I can be coarse, yeah? Sometimes I say things that make you go, ah, crap, I wish, like, even crap, like, even that, I mean. I mean, just stuff like that, right? And people have left the church because of that. They have, and i, I got to let that happen. Why? Because I've made clear my calling. I am here, I am here by the call of God to reach out to people who are not being reached by other churches. We got a thousand churches in Franklin County, plenty of places for church people to go. I wanted to build a church by God's grace that was for people who didn't think they liked church. And here you are. So if the coarseness is a problem for you, remember that's probably the thing that drew you in the beginning. We see this over and over again. We would not have room on this property for everybody who has come to this church who was drawn by the coarseness, found Christ, got a little sophistication and refinement in their life, and went, man, that guy's coarse. i got to go find a real church. That's okay. As long as they go to the real church, God bless them. Some of you have found your refinement, you've found your sanctification. You, I'm going to hang in with this guy, because we're reaching some people here. Man, if you were here... If you weren't here last Sunday night to see the baptisms, holy smokes, just hearing those testimonies reminded me all over again what we're doing here. Now, I don't say crap and sucks and stuff on purpose. It's never in my notes. (laughs) Ever. I never write out, say crap here or something like that. Ever. It's just part of who I am in the calling. I don't do it for effect. It's the person God has called me to be to reach you. So before you discern that part, no, I've been open about my calling. Know this also as you discern me, that I understand that you are depending on me to get this stuff right. I, I, guys, I approach this word with fear. Because I know that hundreds of you are going to come every Sunday and say, is there any word from Jehovah? What has God said? I know I'm not your priest. I will never stand between you and God. But I realize my function as your pastor is to get this right. And then the last thing you should know as you discern me is that I understand fully that there will come a day when I have to stand before God and give an account not only for the way I have lived my life as a Christian, as you will, but I will have to give an account for how I have conducted my ministry. The book of James, the book of Hebrews are clear that I will be judged more harshly than you. You see who I want to be a middle school teacher? <laughs> you see? But if at the end of your prayerful discernment of me you decide that I'm good enough, 
and that there is sufficient fruit on my tree, then you may come and you may remain in my pastoral care. I'm not your priest. I'm your brother who's a pastor. If, on the other hand, you decide that such is not the case, then you must begin the painful and difficult process of finding some other under-shepherd of Jesus in whose care you can place yourself with confidence. This is part of God's plan, is that we be part of a body. So first, test me, and maybe you're ahead of me. Second, test yourself. I ask you, Jesus said these words. They were directed to false prophets, of course. I live under that. But I also urge you to test the authenticity of your own faith. I ask you to pray about this very thing in the presence of God. I'm not trying to get anybody to doubt their salvation and get saved all over again. I'm asking you, as I go to the Lord, you do the same. And you go to the Lord and pray about this. Do you know, do you know, do you know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of your life? Or just know about him? Do you know him? Because at the end of your life, you will not be saved by your grasp of sound doctrine or by your accomplishments as a Christian. Lord, didn't we? You'll be saved only by your personal relationship with Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of your life. Do you belong to him? Do you live your life as one who's not your own anymore? You don't belong to yourself. The Bible says, don't you know that you were bought at a price? You are not your own. It says you're bought at a price. That Jesus Christ, the living reality, not the thought of him, but the living reality, the living dynamic of Jesus Christ, is the central, central priority of your life. Do you belong to him? In my two weeks away, I, I found a great song. Come on, Hope. Gang, got a few people going to back us up. I found a great song. And uh, it's a song written by Ryan Delmore. And it says, I belong to you. And so as we, as we just you know, move toward the end of our time together, I just, want, I just want you to see if you can sing this song. That I belong to you. Do you belong to Jesus Christ? You belong, he, he's here. And if you discover, I don't know, then turn to him and say, Lord, I want to belong to you. I want to be your possession. I want to be owned by you. I want you to be master, savior, Lord of my life. I want you to be the guiding priority. I want you to be the thing that makes my decisions. I want you to be the one who gets me out of my addictions and through my depressions. I want you to be the God who carries me when it's bright and shiny out and when it's dark out. I want you to be the one who's inside of me. I want you to be my heartbeat. I want to belong to you. I'm not judging anybody in the room. I'm not looking at anybody going, you need to do this. I don't know. I'm just asking the question, do you know Jesus Christ? Are you knowing him? Experiencing the reality of him? And those of you who are, you know, there's never enough, is there? It's like, that was good, Jesus. I'll take ten more. So I invite all of you, as we share this song with you, to, to try to sing it. You know, from that place in your heart that says, I belong to you.